here. <laughs> Somebody's always trying to stop the fun, man. If you if you start having fun, they're going to try to make a law against you. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> good good advice on a Saturday night. Yeah. Hey, I got another one for me. A- ask me how I'm doing. How you doing? Man, I'm doing so good. Scientists want to clone me. Oh, I heard about people like you. There you go. See? They're going to use me as a, a model for all humanity. It's a big role, and but I think I can I think I can pull it off. All right, I got one for you because I heard earlier you're complaining about your Indianapolis Colts this year, and I'm a I'm a Patriots fan. Uh-oh. Both our teams were ter- both our teams were terrible this year. Yeah, but back in the day we were always fighting it out for first place, and this year not so much. No, what, what happened, no. man? Ah, uh, the cycle up and down, ebbs and flows. Hmm. Well, I'll tell you what, ebbs and flow. We're going to flow right into. Some very interesting uh, historical information, David and Med. You've you've written a lot of books, and I'm really thrilled to have you on. I see people in the live chat was already talking about that, talking about uh, the the uh, the Knights Templar and the Holy Grail. Man, all these things. There, there seems to be some sort of connection between all of it. Have you have you been slowly putting yeah. the pieces together, or how how did you roll into that? Yeah, so I think the connection, Daniel, is that um, you know we all grew up thinking that. 1492 Columbus sailed the ocean blue and that, you know, he was the first person that to cross the Atlantic and discover America. And the, the more time I spend researching this and, and, and the more I look into it, the more I realize that that just wasn't the case. I think that the idea that the Atlantic ocean was a barrier instead of a highway is just wrong. And I think that there's been waves of explorers coming back and forth across starting with the ancient Phoenicians, the Irish, the Celts, um, the Portuguese, the Templars. Uh, and I think Columbus just you know, was late to the party. He happened to get the credit. But as you go back and look at all this stuff, um, it just looks like this. I, I'm, a, I'm a lawyer by trade, so I look at things like evidence. You know, That's what I'm trained to do is to look at and analyze and weigh evidence. And the evidence is just sitting there. And, and you know, I might not have the story exactly right, but there is a story – that this evidence tells, and I'm pretty sure the story has a lot to do with Columbus not being the first one across the ocean. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of reminds me, years back, there was, uh, I think it was along the Missouri River, uh, the Army Corps of Engineers discovered some skeletons that predated the Indians, and yeah. the Indians got upset about it because they didn't want anybody predating because there are billions of dollars worth of, st- of, of uh, federal dollars on the line, plus their their allotted land and stuff. So they, they, they complained enough. And so they called they, the uh, army Corps of Engineer, engineers came in and they took giant boulders. They, they just started dumping them on the site so that nobody could ever excavate it again. Um, you know, you're talking about a, a, a law that was passed federal law in the ni- in 1990 called NAGPRA, uh, which basically forbids uh, any of these ancient bones from being disturbed in any way. And of course, a lot of them are native American bones, but one of the things I know you want to talk about today is the giants. And that's a real issue when trying to prove the existence of ancient giant skeletons in North America. You, 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 there used to be museums that held these things, but it's illegal now to have them. And so if you ever want to research this subject, which I do, I'm finding that unless you can find somebody with a private collection who's willing to let you in and see this stuff, it's not on display because it's against the law to be that way. So I mean, the law may have been well-intentioned. You don't want people, you know, raiding grave sites. But the unintended consequences of that are that it makes it hard sometimes to get a good look at our history. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So what 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 is the uh, Smithsonian hiding from us, David? Besides everything, <laughs> you know, it's, you know, I, I I have a lot of uh, friends that are researchers, and a lot of them have this idea that there's a whole grand conspiracy that the Smithsonian is trying to hide things from us. And mm-hmm. I don't subscribe to that, to be honest, Daniel. I, I think what you have with the Smithsonian is the same thing that you have with a lot of academic types at, at universities. And what I call that, I call it pigheadedness. And what that is, is that these people grew up with a certain mindset. They were taught certain things by professors. Um, if they wanted to get their PhD dis- dissertation approved, they had to parrot back certain opinions. If they wanted to get tenure, they had to parrot back certain opinions. If they wanted to be promoted, you understand what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that sort of party line was that Columbus was here first. There was nobody here beforehand. Um, so, and, and, and these guys have now gone on record with that. So I don't think it's a whole conspiracy that they, they don't want us to know. I think it's more a personal thing. They don't want to be proven wrong. They don't want to have egg on their face by having to admit that all those things that they were preaching all these years actually was incorrect. Mm-hmm. All right. Hey, we've got a few questions coming in already for you. And um, sure. now, of course, we're talking about Giants. One of the things that are, are – are, uh, widely known are the uh, serpent mounds, and one is the serpent mound of Ohio, I'm sure. But uh, Australia yeah. is this: uh, who is the serpent oracle? Have you ever heard of the serpent oracle? Uh, that's a that's a novel I just wrote, so I'm guessing that's one of my readers. I wrote a novel that came out about seven eight months ago, back in uh, June, mm-hmm. uh, called the Serpent Oracle, and a lot of it was based on the serpent mound in southern Ohio. Um, that may be what you were referring to. It's a mm-hmm. fascinating. A uh, quarter mile long mound in the shape of a serpent. It looks like the mouth might be eating an egg. The mm-hmm. the the um, twists in the serpent's body seem to line up to certain uh, astronomical uh, phenomena, such as equinoxes and solstices. And the question is, was that mound built by some kind of Native American Indian culture, or does it go back even earlier to? than that because in that particular area southern ohio there really wasn't a lot of serpent worship going on and so the possibility is that goes back to some other ancient culture we know a lot of the mediterranean and middle eastern cultures were serpent worshipers um so i'm guessing that's what that question is leading toward um but if they're asking what the serpent oracle is uh it's just the title of my book mm-hmm. and are you, are you worthy of the egyptian names out there at the uh, grand canyon yeah, so I did some research on that, and I included that in one of my books. Um, that's a report that was done, I think it was by a Phoenix newspaper. We're talking 1910, 1920, somewhere around there, about a supposed uh, Smithsonian archaeologist who went down the river and found these Egyptian cart- uh, iconography and, 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 and cartouches and whatever. I'm not sure that that's a valid story. There was really no other source for that, and no one's been able to find that sense. So I'm not saying that that couldn't have happened. It definitely could have, but I'm not 100% convinced that's that's not the strongest argument I would make for the idea of, of ancient peoples being in America. Hmm. Here's one for you. Uh, is uh, is Aquaman the only survivor of Atlantis? <laughs> so the Atlantis story is fascinating. It's one of those things that a lot of my researchers – Sorry, pardon me. A lot of my readers asked me to research Atlantis, saying, you know, what do you know about that? And and I thought, you know, that's a dead end. There's nothing there. But the more I looked into that, there's some fascinating 
scientific evidence, and that's I try to stick on science with science on this stuff as much as I can. Again, it's about the evidence, um, indicating that there, there probably was some kind of ancient civilization. I think in the middle of the Atlantic, along the Atlantic Ridge, uh, Plato got the date exactly right. He told he told us it was eleven thousand six hundred years ago from before today. Obviously, he, he lived two thousand years ago, but he nailed the date. Uh, at the time he he called that date obviously he didn't have the benefit of the science we have today that date corresponds exactly with the end of the last ice age the end of something called the younger dryas some kind of um, catastrophic event happened which would have caused atlantis to sink into the ocean again plato nailed that date how could somebody over 2000 years ago be that specific about a date like that unless he had ancient knowledge passed down to him which is what he claimed to have. There's also some really compelling evidence scientifically, as I said, there are eels, so, uh, freshwater eels, both in North America and in Europe, that when it comes time to spawn, they swim down the rivers to the ocean, and the, those eels, the European eels and the North American eels, meet in the middle of the Atlantic to spawn. Um, this is something called Nostophilia. It's a, it's a, an ancient uh, instinct that animals have to return to a homeland, to the original homeland. Again, we've got freshwater animals going into the ocean, meeting halfway across together from both sides to meet. That tells me that at one point in the middle of the Atlantic, there was, again, the Atlantic Ridge, there was a landmass that that's where these eels at one point lived, and they have a memory of that going back. 10, 12, 15,000 years, and to this day they still do that. There's really no other explanation as to why they would do that. There are similarly uh, a, 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 a group of butterflies in northern South America, off the northern coast of Venezuela, that fly out over the Atlantic and start circling around as if looking for an ancient homeland, an island of some kind, and they keep doing that until eventually they just die of exhaustion and drop into the ocean. But again, no stephelia, this urge hmm. to return to an ancient homeland. So again, there's a lot of evidence uh, I found about Atlantis. There's um, uh, on, on both sides of the Atlantic, these groups of what's called red paint people, people who are buried in ancient times going back seven, 8,000 years ago. You find a lot of them up on the uh, Maritime Canada region. Mm -hmm. They were buried with red ochre, red paint on their bodies. Uh, this was done because their, their loved ones wanted them to go to the afterlife and this red paint was supposedly there we go, there's a picture of, of them the blood that they would need to go to the afterlife and if you look at a map uh, a, a, around the Atlantic Ocean of the different cultures there we go, thank you, that we have found red paint burial sites and you picture a, an Atlantis-like civilization in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean and what we would have was that that civilization would have dropped into the sea and destroyed but a few people would have been able to escape. They, were, they weren't at home at the time. They were out on a fishing or a trading expedition. And so around the rim of the Atlantic Ocean, these civilizations restarted themselves. And they carried forth with them some of these traditions, such as the red paint burial. Otherwise, we have this idea that all these cultures, thousands of miles apart, came up with the same idea. Let's mm -hmm. bury our people in let's, let's cover our dead with red paint and bury them, which I guess you could have one or two cultures sort of stumble upon that at the same time. But we have so many of them scattered so far apart 
that to me that screams mm -hmm. common origin. Mm -hmm. Again, Atlantis. Uh, now, some people make make that uh, argument uh, with uh, Noah's flood that there are uh, about 130 different civilizations that have some sort of flood yeah. in their yep. ancient history, indicating and these are, these are totally disconnected civilizations. Uh, so it seems that that is the same sort of um, thing there, verification from uh, from afar from different uh, civilizations. Right. There's a huge number of, um, as you said, um, ancient cultures that have a flood narrative. And I think what that goes back to is the same thing I said earlier, that about 11,600 years ago, there was some kind of catastrophic event, and our scientists tell us this, um, whether it was a meteorite strike or what, and it caused tidal waves, earthquakes, fires, flooding, uh, basically this, this huge cataclysm. We know it as you know, Noah's Ark, that's how it got passed down in the, in the Bible. But um, all sorts of cultures around around the globe have that story. Mm -hmm. And uh, most, I think most stories in the Bible have a scientific basis to them, and that's just one of them. Mm -hmm. All right. By the way, I want to welcome uh, in the live chat, uh, joining us, Antivirus, Australian Ben, Robert Griffin. All right. Rose Renoff says, uh, David, what is the Holy Grail? Is it the is it the Jesus bloodline? Yeah, that's an interesting question. You know, no one knows for certain, so I'm not going to tell you that I know. Um, the, if you read the, the Da Vinci Code or the book that upon which that was based, Holy Blood, Holy Grail, that's the basically the the theory behind that is that the the blood of Jesus genetically was passed down through Mary Magdalene to the heirs, the bloodline, and that's really what he what he left us. Um, that, that's as good a guess as as any. Other people say the Holy Grail is more of some kind of esoteric uh, belief set. Um, I've heard people say that it is, um, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example. Hitler was obsessed with the Holy Grail. He believed that it was something that could be weaponized. And, and one of the books I wrote was um, a novel based about uh, Hitler trying to get hold of something called the Ghent Altarpiece, which mm -hmm. is a famous piece of artwork in Belgium. Uh, the, the movie The Monuments Men was based on that as well. Uh, but Hitler was obsessed with that painting because he believed one of the panels in the Ghent altarpiece painting was actually a map to the Holy Grail. And again, he wanted to weaponize it. He also wanted to use it to, 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 to gain uh, the fountain of youth, infinite life. And he was after that because he wanted to, to rule the world. So lots of different interpretations of what the Holy Grail may be. I'm, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go out on that ledge. So, but but, give you a but we're pretty that, we're pretty we're pretty sure Indiana Jones didn't find it. Or the Ark of the Covenant. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Rose says again. Um, do you think other people lived here before the Native Americans? No, I think the Native Americans. Um, here's what I do think. So the, the conventional wisdom is that the Native Americans came across. So where Alaska is, the Bering Land Strait from, from Siberia, from Asia, oh, about 15,000 years ago in that range. Uh, there's also a second theory that says at one point the Atlantic Ocean, this is called the Salutrian theory, that at one point the Atlantic Ocean was not as deep and therefore there are a lot of islands. And one theory is maybe 20, 25,000 years ago, groups of people uh, using smaller boats, island hopped their way across the North Atlantic and settled in North America before the the uh, migration from Asia. That, ha I happen to believe, is true. And there's a lot of tribes, especially the Cherokee tribe, 
whose whose uh, legends and uh, oral history talks about how they came across to America from the Sunrise Sea, which would be the Atlantic Ocean, being that would be the sunrises. And so the, the, the Cherokee legends are consistent with the Salutrian possibility. Uh, so I, I don't believe there's anyone here before the Indians, but I believe those Indians, quote-unquote, came both from the West and from the East. All right, good answer there. All right, to put you all the way first, says David, do you believe the Vikings preceded Columbus? There is a rock in Massachusetts with Viking inscriptions. He, this person saw it. So there's a number of rocks in and around Massachusetts. I think I sent one over to you, Daniel. There's a, a one with a, a runic inscription. It's a brown uh, rectangular stone. Um, so yes, definitely the Vikings were were as far as uh, merit. Uh, different one than that. Next to it, I think the Vikings were definitely in. There we go. Oh. <laughs> it has a lot of little letters on it. All right. Um, the Vikings were in. Um, Canada, New Finland, we know that for certain. They were here. There we go. That's it right there. That's what you're looking at now over Daniel's shoulder, something called a rune stone, R-U-N-E. Uh, this is a Scandinavian script. Uh, this one is very interesting. It was found in Maine in the 1970s, and what it is is it's a ship's log. Uh, it dates itself at 1401. The University of Maine archaeological team excavated a sod house next to it carbon dated the floorboards at 1406 plus or minus five so those are two really strong dates the problem with those dates of course it's before columbus so it can't be colonial but it's after the vikings it's after the vikings are here um leif erickson and his group were in maritime canada perhaps as far down as nova scotia and new brunswick and maybe even maine uh back in the 1100s 1100 11th century and, and after this stone that we're looking at here in, in Maine is sort of in between. It's between in between the Vikings and Columbus. This, I think, is evidence of something that happened right around 1398. Remember I said 1401, 1406. It's right around the same time frame. That is the exploration of America by a Scottish uh, explorer by the name of Prince Henry Sinclair. Sinclair, though Scottish, was Norse on his mother's side, and that's why he and his people would have written a rune stone, the Norse language, as per that rock behind you. But we believe Sinclair, who, by the way, uh, was a descendant of a Knights Templar family. Mm -hmm. uh, we think that Sinclair and his group came over in 1398, stayed here for a couple of years, maybe as long as 10 years, uh, would have carved that stone in the background, would have built something called the Newport Tower. I think you showed, you flashed a picture of the tower earlier, a round stone tower in Newport, Rhode Island, and there's a lot of uh, hard evidence, here we go, that indicates that that tower predates colonial time period. You can look at the architecture. It's not something the colonists would have done Romanesque style. They didn't build in, in stone. They built in wood back then. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of evidence that, that ties this to Scotland. So there's that, and there's also another piece of evidence. Uh, there's a there's a, a rubbing, Daniel, called the West of uh, the Westford Night. It's a pink image. Um, there's a rubbing, there we go, in uh, in in northern Massachusetts along the Merrimack River of what looks to be a, a medieval mm -hmm. night. And the legend is that when Prince Henry Sinclair and his group came over here, that while they were traveling with native guides, one of their men died. And as was the custom in medieval times, when a knight died, you carved an effigy of him into the rock ledge. And what you see on the screen right now is a rubbing 
of that fallen knight, we think his name mm-hmm. is Sir James Gunn. Mm-hmm. But we've got the runestone, we've got the tower, the Newport Tower, we've got the, the carving of the, the rubbing of the knight, the carving of the knight. Uh, all of these, amongst other evidence, seem to indicate that there was a group of Scottish explorers in America, specifically New England and southern Canada, about 100 years before Columbus. So that would be, the question was about Vikings. Yes, I think the Vikings were here earlier than that, and it may have been that Sinclair, his mother being a Norse woman, as I said, he may have been following old Viking maps and oral history to get here, but I think it was Vikings, Templars, Columbus, and before Vikings, other people as well. All right. Um, let's get a couple more questions. And this one just came in. Uh, I heard the Smithsonian are hiding the Nephilim giants. Is that true? I don't know if they're hiding. Um, it, it wouldn't surprise me. The Smithsonian, uh, actually, Daniel, do you have that uh, image with the map showing all the different spots where, where giant bones were found across America? Yeah, let's go ahead. Bring, yeah, we've got that here. Yeah. Uh, so there's same. a fascinating map that somebody put together, and I, and I stole it. I apologize. It's not my map. There it is. Um, a researcher did this. Each of those dots indicates a newspaper account from the 1800s, early 1900s, an account talking about uh, giant bones being found by farmers or pioneers or uh, construction people. Uh, and there's about 1,500 of those accounts. Wow. A number of those accounts are actually uh, Smithsonian. Uh, Smithsonian. The Smithsonian spent a lot of time in the late 1800s excavating burial mounds, uh, and especially in the Ohio River Valley. All these marks, all these um, purple dots indicate giant bones, and we're talking at least seven feet tall. So we're between seven and, say, 11 feet tall. Importantly, we're not talking the jolly green giant at 20 or 25 feet. So it's, it's part of this is a definitional question. When we're talking about giants, let's say seven and a half to 10, okay? Um, so really tall humans, but not a different race. And if we think of giants like that, uh, then I think there's a ton of evidence for that. The Smithsonian, most many times, these bones were, were dug up. The local judge or the local surgeon would sign an affidavit to the effect that it was eight feet, eight and a half feet, whatever it was. The bones would be put on display at the library or town hall. But ashes to ashes, dust to dust, eventually those bones decayed. They weren't put in a climate-controlled environment back then. Sometimes the bones are set to the, sent to the Smithsonian. And here's where we have the question. What happened to them? The Smithsonian right. basically says, we don't know. We lost them. They, who knows? That's one of those things where if you're going to make a case that the Smithsonian is covering something up, that may be one where you have some legs to stand on because mm-hmm. there's just too many of those. Again, look at all those purple dots. Right. There's just it, too many examples. Right. And oftentimes, again, it was Smithsonian reports. If you go back and look through their their, their writings, they, they actually talk about finding bones of a seven and a half foot skeleton. And, you know, they, they, it's it's not just newspaper accounts. Mm-hmm. It's the Smithsonian itself. So right, we have right, a lot right, of evidence of right. these oversized humans. And I've always felt, and I know one your 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 poll question today was, you know, are they Nephilim? Are they aliens? I think if we look at, and I think I want I want to, I want to get this right. Um, it's an island, uh, Flor the Flores men. Yeah, the Flores men. There's a group of pygmies that were found on an island. Uh, I believe in Central Africa, in the Central African rainforest, they were three and a half feet tall. And so what we have is a, a race of humans 
that are three and a half feet tall. And we all are familiar with the bell curve that most of us are in the middle someplace between, you know, five foot four and six foot two, whatever that range is. But at either end, we have extremes. And so at the one side, we have three and a half foot tall pygmies. I think at the other side, we can have seven and a half, eight, mm-hmm. eight and a half foot tall race of giants. Mm-hmm. Again, this is what nature demands, a bell curve. And so are those people still alive today? No. Did they live at one point? Did they come to America? Apparently, it looks like, yes, the evidence looking at the map behind your shoulder indicates yes. And I don't think, again, we, we're not talking about 20-foot jolly green giants. We're talking about mm-hmm. human beings seven and a half right, to right, nine right. feet. Well, David, David, like like the, the, the flood, uh, the very existence of this map, to me, vindicates or corroborates the biblical narrative, which is full of stories of giants in it. Yes. In fact, I think there's even a book, uh, an extra biblical book called The Book of Giants. So again, yes. so we're science, scientifically um, supported evidence there that the biblical narrative is, is uh, more true than people will give it credit for. All right, and you mentioned right, the and poll, I- you mentioned the poll, and so let's take a look at that. And uh, for people yep. watching the program, the poll's on the left side of the website. So who were the giants? And uh, let me see what the the results are so far. We've had it up. Uh, the Nephilim's number one. We got aliens number two. Human animal hybrids, large demons, and then genetic aberrations on that. So definitely. Oh, that's, that's my. I, I'm losing. That's my vote. I'm in last place. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Come on. We got to. We got to move. People. Give me some votes. Well, that's what we're trying to do, man. See, we, what we like to do, we always tailor the vote, the, the poll question to the guest topic, <laughs> right. and see if the guest can move that poll with their narrative. All right, let's right, get to- but I, I'm not I'm not preaching to the choir because everyone thinks I'm wrong about this. So no. I do have a theory, by the way, t- talking about the, the the Bible. Do we need to take a break in, or are we okay for a bit? No, there is no break on this show. Okay, good. So <laughs> tying this to the Bible, so you know, I mentioned the different groups of people who may have come to America before Columbus. I think that the first people who came were the uh, the Phoenicians. The Phoenicians today we call them the the Lebanese, from Lebanon, they used to be called Canaanites. Um, they were the, the merchant marine of the ancient world. They were uh, they were great sailors. They navigated by the stars. They had boats bigger than Columbus. Um, they lived in the hills of Lebanon, which is where the giants of the Bible lived. I think the Phoenicians, there's lots of evidence. We don't probably don't have time to get into that aspect tonight. We can if you want, but lots of evidence that the Phoenicians came over to America came up to the Great Lakes region to mine and trade for copper. Mm-hmm. And you needed copper to mix with tin to make bronze. Tin was like 8% and copper was like 92%, something mm-hmm. like that. And plenty of tin was found on the southern coast of England, Cornwall. And we know the Phoenicians went up to Cornwall to get the tin. What we don't know is where all the copper came from. Some of it came from Cyprus. In fact, the word Cyprus actually means copper, but not enough to fuel the huge amounts of bronze that was used during the Bronze Age. So again, there's a lot of evidence that ancient peoples, according to the Native Americans and according to some some scientific studies done in the Great Lakes region, somebody came in ancient times and took a lot of what's called low copper out of the Great Lakes region. I think it was the Phoenicians. Mm. Assuming I'm right, if the Phoenicians, the Lebanese, were to come over here and want to mine for copper it makes sense it would bring their biggest strongest guys mm. the giants I actually uh, we actually had a, a guy on this program that said that uh copper was used uh for the dead giants they would put them on their wrists 
and it, I guess it kept him from reanimating. Uh, so that's interesting. You brought that up. Yeah. All right, let's get to another question. And, and, and just to, to, to finish it off, one of the yeah. burial mounds up in, uh, I believe, West Virginia, Indian Creek burial mound. One of the the skeletons, a giant skeleton, seven and a half foot skeleton, has a an inscription uh, under his head, and this inscription is in Phoenician. So nice. again, what I think happened is when the ancient Phoenicians came over here from the hills of Lebanon. They brought their biggest, strongest guys, the Giants. They did their mining. A lot of them, or even some of them, stayed for whatever reason, married into the Native American culture. They went Native, and that's what we have. That's why it's the Ohio River Valley and Great Lakes where we have this huge concentration of these giant skeletons. Mm -hmm. I think that's where the the quote-unquote race of giants comes from. It all stems from those biblical giants who came over, say, 3,000 years ago to mine for copper. Hmm. Very, very interesting. Uh, here's yeah, a, I, I can't prove that, but just connecting the dots. Well, here's an unusual, unrelated factoid for you, David Brody. Um, uh, a couple of years ago, I read a story that in uh, in uh, Europe, they they found, uh, even I think believe in Transylvania, they found skeletons uh, with bricks in their mouth. And the, the locals believe that if they didn't put a brick in their mouth, they couldn't reanimate, come back as a vampire. So they shoved the brick yeah. in in there to make sure that they, they couldn't come back. Just a little look, look that one up. You want to have some fun for your next book. All right. Yeah, there we go. Australian Ben says, uh, David is the cult of Venus in Hollywood and which, which is their goddess? Again, it's another title of my book, the cult of Venus. So somebody is it the same question, same guy who asked the question before. So the cult of Venus is the title of uh, another novel in this, in the story. Uh, focusing on the idea that many ancient cultures prior to the time of, say, Abraham, the biblical Abraham, prior to that, in fact, Abraham's wife, Sarah, um, herself was a priestess. Prior to Abraham, most cultures in in the ancient world uh, believed in goddess worship, that that the deity, uh, instead of being bearded and masculine, was a combination of male and female. And in fact, even if you look back into some of the writings in the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, for example, the Jewish word for uh, God, there's three or four or five or six different words that that they use, but one of them, a popular one, is Elohim. And that's a plural of the word word Eloha, meaning goddess. So in in the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, when it talks about Elohim, the Lord, that's a feminine uh, representation of, of the God. Mm-hmm. Uh, similarly, the, the, in the book of Exodus, sometimes God is referred to as El Shaddai, the many-breasted God, mm-hmm. probably again a female. Um, so that book, The Cult of Venus, talks about how the ancient peoples understood that uh, the deity, just like in nature, just like nature requires balance, a male and a female to be healthy, that the god was probably part male, but also part mm-hmm. female. The female mm-hmm. being the giver of life. Um, and a up-to-date kind of um, connection there. There seems to be a lot of that male, female, don't know which or both now coming out of the woodwork. I'm wondering if if this is sort of a a, a history repeating itself that a, a whole race of not a female, male type humans are coming on board and interesting i just read it down if you saw the ranting points here uh, with, that's a part of the segment of the program before the guest comes on 
and I was going through the, a news report, and I, I just read that Nancy Pelosi called an exorcist uh, to her house uh, for this Paul Pelosi thing. So we got we got exorcisms going on. We got male slash female things going on. Uh, next thing we're gonna know, David, we're gonna have giants out here again. Am I looking at this wrong? <laughs> I'm not going to get into the politics of that with you tonight, Daniel, because I don't think you and I agree are on the same page politically. But um, no, I'm just yeah, saying, are we are we leading toward are we are we leading toward giants reappearing? Is my question. I I've not seen any evidence of that. No, you know, I think that that's a type of um, you know, it's a, it's a genetic thing where uh, once in a great while the human again, just like the pygmies or oh, the other thing about the giants, by the way, they which is a fascinating. Um, piece of evidence, you know, as again, to say it again, as a lawyer, I always look to at the evidence. And some people say, oh, that, you know, those accounts of those giants, it was the newspapers that back then, they were very sensationalized. But, but almost, not almost, a huge number of those reports uh, specified that the giants had double rows of teeth. Mm-hmm. So that's one of those things that these were, they not only had this genetic. Uh, different differentiation that made them tall, but also a second row of teeth, mm-hmm. which I always thought was sort and, of good corroborating evidence of it, it finding have, these giants with double teeth. It might have been in the Book of Giants, but it also read, uh, or maybe in the Book of Enoch, but uh, it turns out uh, many of those giants were also cannibals. Have you come across any of that? Yeah, so that's part of the Native American uh, legend and culture as to what happened to the giants. Eventually, the giants were obviously bigger and stronger than everybody else. And at some point, all the tribes, especially in the Ohio River Valley area, got together and finally said, we just can't have these people rampaging around. And they got together and wiped them out. Hmm. All right. Let's, uh, I want to welcome uh, Gary and uh, Robert Griffin and uh, Army Vet to the uh, live chat. Uh, if you, ha- you guys have a question for David Brody, just put it in there. That's where we're pulling our questions for tonight. All right. It uh, says, David, is it true that the Nazis performed rituals to bring the great aliens into the world. Let's bring the aliens on board here, David. <laughs> so the Nazis did a lot of interesting things. So I mentioned before, Hitler was obsessed with the Holy Grail, something called the, the Armus Christi, which is the, the, the items that were used to crucify Christ, the, the, be, the uh, hat of thorns, the, uh, the, the lance, um, the cross itself. He thought all that could be weaponized. Himmler... Uh, his his top assistant uh, also had an obsession with the occult, but he was more focused on the ancient gods of uh, of Scandinavia, uh, Thor and his hammer, mm-hmm. um, and Atlantis. Both of them were open to the idea of aliens. So between the two of them, they had sent teams of scientists out into all over Europe, into the Himalayan mountains, into Scandinavia looking for evidence of Atlantis, of the Holy Grail, of the Armas Christi, of aliens. They really thought that any one of these would help them not only win the war, but maintain power for generations to come. Mm. Okay, so uh, for you guys watching the program here, I don't want any comments on this next picture here. Let's take a look at this. Uh, David, you sent me this. What, <laughs> what, what, are we, what exactly are we looking at here? All right, so we're talking about <laughs> we were talking about um, Atlantis, and I showed earlier the, uh, the you showed earlier the map that had the red paint burial sites on both sides of the Atlantic and down into Central America. Basically, we'll call it the Atlantic Rim around what would have been uh, an Atlantis 
island or continent up in the northern Atlantic near where the Azores are today. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, the different one with the red paint people. Um, the other thing, and, and I, I there we go, and I made the comment that, you know, is it possible that all six of these cultures, these people, would have come up with the same burial practice, or instead, is it more likely that they had a common origin and that and that practice spread across the Atlantic? The same is things true with the witch. It turns out that both uh, Europe and Central America have this uh, belief that a witch wore a pointy hat and rode a broomstick. And again, it's one of those things. There she is. This is this is the witch from um, I believe it's Mexico, but I'm mm-hmm. not positive. Yeah. Eastern Mexico. Yeah. Um, there there she is. She looks an awful lot like the witches that we have in in Europe. You know, there she is with a pointy black hat mm-hmm. and right. riding the broomstick. Right. So how is it that both cultures Naked. came up with this idea of a witch mm-hmm. on their own, or instead was there some kind of communication going back and forth? Hmm. Doesn't look like a naked witch with that, not wearing a bra going on there. All right, so let's uh, get to an, <laughs> let's, let's get an, another question here. Uh, oh, by the way, man, I mean when when the Puritans uh, burned witches at the stake, were they? We all laugh and say well, they never should have did it. They were racist, big whatever. I mean, we're reanalyzing it with today's culture. But did they? Were there witches? Were, do you think no. there was ever a real witch in Salem? No, I, I think what what we call a witch or what they call a witch was really just women. You know, again, this was a, a very male-dominated time, and, and, and the church was, you know, sinners in the hands of an angry God and a scarlet letter and, you know, all that stuff. It was very, very rigid and patriarchal. And there were women who were a little bit rebellious, and they might have been out in mm-hmm. the woods with, you know, trying to, trying to use herbs or roots as medicine, mm-hmm. anything like that, anything that was – other than if, – if you did anything besides pray – you were considered to be a radical back then. Mm-hmm. So no, I think it's just women, as women have done for, for millennia, uh, using natural herbal remedies. Yeah. And that's all they were doing. And it it might have been a birth control type thing. I you know? understand the patriarchal, like the patriarchal society there. But the fact of the matter is, there had to be male-dominated, because I, I, I couldn't see uh, the women toting the muskets going out there and fighting off the Indians and the bears and everything else. There had to be male-dominated to keep... The, to, to, for the civilization to take root on this continent, it seems to me. Um, all right, let's get to another question here. Um, it says, do you believe in the flood, and are you an atheist? I'm not going to answer the question about my own personal religion, but yes, I do believe in the flood. What I think I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of scientific evidence that mm-hmm. about 11,600 years ago, there was some kind of uh, catastrophic event uh, we'll call it a meteorite, but we're not we're not sure that caused a massive flood. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yes, I, I do believe in that. Okay, all right. And uh, what, uh, David? What are the pillars of Enoch? Uh, again, another title uh, title of an, another one of my novels. Um, we got people <laughs> checking up on you, David. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so the pillars of Enoch are. Um, I think, did you mention just a minute ago, Daniel, the Book of Enoch? Did you yes. mention that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did. Yeah. So, all right. So the, the pillars of Enoch are the, are the, are the pillars um, that are represented, for, as an example, by the two massive pillars in front of the Temple of Solomon. But during the, pl- the flood, this is, uh, again, according to uh, a lot of the Freemasons' history, that during the flood, these two massive pillars were, were used to 
into into each pillar some of the secrets of the knowledge of mankind that w was put into these pillars and that's how a lot of the knowledge survived the flood uh, but those two mm -hmm. pillars and i forget how they were divided mm -hmm. one of the pillars had something and one of the pillars had something else i forget what it was but those two pillars uh preserved uh the knowledge of mankind uh, similar in some ways to those uh guide stones in georgia that were destroyed about six eight months ago i forget the time period but the georgia guide stones that were put up uh supposedly as a as a guide for future for future humanity in case we all died of a nuclear war or something mm -hmm. some have speculated that um the uh, 500 million they, they said that, that one of the goals of the guide stones was to the earth can only support 500 million people and some right. some have speculated that there is um, uh, a plan afoot in operation right now that will cause there to be only 500 million people. This 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 plan has been activated, and therefore the the guy stones were demolished because they have achieved their goal, or at least set their goal in motion. Now earlier, David, I mentioned the male sort of female type. I mean, when when I go to the store, I mean, I don't know how many. I can't tell if they're male or female, a whole bunch of people, and that sounds political, but it's really not. But I'm talking about a resurgence of that type because I think uh, e somewhere in the East Coast, uh, in maybe cities or complete states, the rise of witchcraft and witch covens is out, I believe, is outpacing normal religious uh, uh, dogma, really, for that matter. I mean, uh, I was in the Great Smoky Mountains, and I, and I saw... Uh, round circle of rocks and I found that, that witches go up there and, and they make these round rocks and do their seance or whatever they do so I'm just seeing that there's a resurgence of the sort of a, the reaching into the, the dark arts uh, in, in this country and I don't know if they are in uh, is this parallel paralleling ancient history or is this something new so so I agree that there has been a, a, a huge resurgence in uh, we'll call it Wiccan, Wiccan, mm -hmm. um, yeah, Wiccan. Um, yeah, is what they call it. Um, mm -hmm. Witchcraft, you can call it. You can call it the dark arts, whatever you want to call it. Um, but I think that's a reflection uh, to a, in a, to a large degree uh, of dissatisfaction with mainstream religion, in particular the scandal with the, the priest scandal with the Catholic Church 10, 15, mm -hmm. 20 years ago, whatever that was. That um, I think a lot of people were disillusioned. And have been disillusioned by mainstream religion for lots of different reasons, um, but I also think it's a it's a it's a it's a bounce back or, or a rebound back towards um, nature worship at a time when some people believe the planet is in danger because of global warming, and so mm -hmm. it's back to a sort of a, a worship mother nature. Mm -hmm. It's really all witchcraft is in a lot of ways is is the worship and. Mm -hmm. uh, um, and reverence of Mother Nature. Well, get, uh, get, getting back to the the Knights Templar and the Holy Grail and the sort of mysticism that that almost every culture has, uh, there seems to be there was some some truth to the things that they were seeing or experiencing, and they believed more. And the Indians are a great uh, example of that with the spirit animals and things that they believe, yeah. and everything is 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 tied together, and so. I mean, so it seems it seems like that there's sort of a resurgence, or and I, I know what you're saying about the disillusionment, but you know I, I got I got to warn people going going to the dark arts really isn't going to bring in bring in the kind of nirvana they think they're going to end up going getting. They may end up yeah, have, they might be a, not, might turn into cannibals. Sorry, sorry, Daniel, to cut you off there. I didn't mean that. Yeah. Um, I'm not seeing um, dark arts. You know, I I, I 
I've witnessed some Wiccan ceremonies um, just in my research, and I'm not seeing dark arts. It's mostly mm-hmm. nature worship. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the Templars and the relations with the Native Americans, and that's an interesting point. Uh, people often ask me, how did the Templars come over here and form an alliance with the Native Americans? And from what I've talked to Native American tribal chiefs about this, and they go back to their oral history, they say one of the things the Templars did is, is build an alliance based on mutual trust and mutual values. And instead of the Templars trying to sort of take over, they came in peace. They traded, they respected the Native cultures. And that's why the Templars were allowed to come here, whereas other people were, were pushed back. I have a good friend who's a Native American tribal chief, and he said, look, if we didn't want the Templars here, we would have kicked their ass and sent them home. And mm-hmm. and that's probably true. You mentioned the muskets earlier, Daniel. So by the time the pilgrims came, the Europeans had gunpowder. And that totally changed the balance of power. But if you go back a couple hundred years before that, when I'm talking e- even the time of Columbus, I don't think Columbus and his group had gunpowder yet. They did have steel, which the natives didn't. But it really was the gunpowder thing that changed the balance of power and allowed the Europeans to set up a foothold here that wouldn't have happened if they didn't have hmm. that. Yeah, I always wonder about that. If, if let's just say, the the Europeans didn't come over here, it seems likely mixed up would have been the Chinese or the Russians or an, another type. So I don't know if it was a good thing or a bad thing, but it seems like it may have worked out. The, if it had to happen, the one civilization taking over another, and I guess it probably was the best but i mean i i certainly can't stand the fact that how many times indians got cheated with 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 deals myself so all right um maximum says david have you seen the movie series dark no i have not okay and here's one another one uh are the elite families of romerica immortal shapeshifters from atlantis so another one of my – got to ask, are these questions all from the same, uh, same listener? The, I, um, I can't tell, but you know I'm looking over there because that's where they're coming in, so I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> so, so, so Romerica is another one of the story, titles of my books in the series. Mm-hmm. There are 15 books, by the way. So i got to say, I, you know, I, w- I went down this rabbit hole to look at the, the, the Knights Templar, and uh, Prince Henry Sinclair was the first one in, my, in the series. And I, and I, literally 15 books later, I can't get out of this out of this rabbit hole. Romerica is based on um, a whole bunch of different artifacts, all of them Roman era, that have been found not only along the New England coastline, mm-hmm. but also in the Ohio River Valley, you know, Kentucky, Indiana, Tennessee, Ohio. Um, you know, what are they doing there? In particular, coins. Uh, this is not one of the maps I sent you, unfortunately, Daniel, but I've got a map that shows literally hundreds of sites where Roman coins were found either along the seashore or along inland rivers. And if you ask archaeologists how this could have happened, they say, well, maybe the maybe the seagulls brought them over. You know, I'm picturing the seagull <laughs> wow. picking up a coin and, okay. you know, and France is flying across sure. it. Or they say, you know, maybe uh, grandparents love to do treasure hunts with their grandkids and they bury coins in the sand. And, and, you know, Daniel, maybe you and I would do that, but we would get pennies and nickels and dimes out of our out of our car. But, you, mm-hmm. know, you know, we wouldn't take Roman coins, right? You wouldn't get a Roman right, coin. Right, and bury right, it. Right, right. You know, so so all, those are just ridiculous, mm-hmm. ridiculous responses. But uh, not just coins, but uh, amphora jars and, and statue, statue, statues. Uh, and these things, when I'm, the coins themselves are easy to date, obviously, the date's right on them. Mm-hmm. But the amphora jars and the porcelain statues – 
<laughs> and other artifacts have been scientifically dated. Some, a, 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 a test called optically stimulated luminescence testing wow. basically determines when the last time was the, uh, the, 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 the compound was exposed to the light of day. So you, you dig into the, into mm-hmm. the artifact and, and you extract something and you test it. When was the last time that, that ceramic material was exposed to sunlight and that was a day it was poured into the mold or whatever anyway yeah. so my point is scientifically these have all been dated back to the second century thereabouts so we have all this these coins and these artifacts they're roman they're second century how did they get here it wasn't the seagulls you know again um there's just so much evidence and i think i think what happened um is that when the romans uh, when the Roman Empire finally defeated the Phoenicians, we talked earlier mm-hmm. about how the Phoenicians were these great seafarers. They defeated the Phoenicians in the Punic Wars right around 400 BC. They incorporated all this technology and all this knowledge and all these shipbuilding uh, abilities into the empire. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, and and that, with that new knowledge, they took over a lot of the Phoenician trade routes. Mm-hmm. And came over to North America again for trade reasons, mm-hmm. and uh, and that's why we see these Roman artifacts yeah. here all right around the second century. Yeah, I, I like to call those out of place artifacts, and I think they're yeah. all they're all over the country. And it's always exciting. If I if if I've been doing this for the last twenty years, I would want to be an archaeologist because I just love the digging the dirt because you never know what you're going <laughs> to find. Uh, the bear. Yeah, wait, I, let me ask you a question. You, you mentioned out of place artifacts. Uh, a fellow researcher by the name of Rick Osmond, I believe, lives in Indiana, and he come. I thought he came up with that term. Are you friendly mm-hmm. with Rick Osmond? Do you know Rick? Uh, no, but maybe we need no. to get him on the show. Yeah, he's the one. That's not my term. I, doc- I, I... He, he documented a lot of Roman fortifications along with the artifacts themselves. Rick has documented what he thinks is a series of Roman forts spanning all the way across the Ohio River Valley. Mm-hmm. Every ten miles or so, there would be a you know, a light system at the top of the a fire at mm-hmm. the top of the fort. And they would signal from one fort to the next. He's done some fabulous research nice. well, uh, documenting it? that whole line. David, what's his name again? Uh, Rick Osman, O-S-M-A-N or O-N. Okay, I'm not fine. positive. Os- All right. Yeah, I, see, I see in the live chat, Bear says, uh, I have a lot of respect for the American Indians. In some ways, they were more civilized than us, and I would <laughs> I definitely agree to that. Um <laughs> Uh, Now, Gary says, Dave, what's up with Antarctica? There's been a lot of people flying up there looking for something or digging for something. What's going on up there? Do you know? I don't. I have not looked at that. I've got a list of things I want to look at for future books, and that's one of them. I just haven't haven't gone down that rabbit hole yet. I apologize. Okay. And then we have this question here. Could you describe your books? Are they based on fact or fiction? They are faction. (laughs) How's that for an answer? They are fiction based in fact. So – these things that we talk about today, whether it's the, uh, the, the, the Newport Tower or the, or the runic inscription mm-hmm. or uh, the evidence of eels going across the Atlantic, what, whatever those things are, there, there, there are certain artifacts, sites, pieces of artwork that are real, and I think those art, pieces of artwork are pieces of evidence that tell an ancient story, but the books themselves are modern day. So if you saw the movie uh, National Treasure, as an mm-hmm. example, where mm-hmm. Nicolas Cage is running around looking at old history, old pieces of evidence, mm-hmm. trying to solve a modern-day mystery mm-hmm. while the bad guys are chasing him. Right. So that's sort of a formula, and, that, and that's what my books are. So it's, it's a, it's a modern-day thriller, suspense, mystery, but it's all triggered by and based on 
actual historical sites and artifacts, and I put pictures of those right in the book so the readers know, even though the book is fiction, the Newport Tower right over your shoulder there, that baby's real. Wow. Um, do you think that that tower was built for uh, sacrifice? No. So that tower was um, lots of different reasons potentially for use. One thing, the Templars, if they built it, you know, they were, again, they were outlawed by them, but the, the descendants of the Templars, they were they were religious monks. And so this would have been a baptistry, uh, would have been a sort of a foothold in the New World. It might have been a prime meridian. Um, there's some really interesting astronomical alignments, which we, we don't, really can't get into without visualization. I didn't give you those slides. Okay. But um, no, I don't think it was used for sacrifice. Mm -hmm. um, grumpy old army vet says, David, could the artifacts we're talking about have been brought back by veterans of World, world War II? That's a good question. So, I mean, sometimes that, that definitely happens, but a lot of the stuff we're talking about uh, was found well before World War II. And then it's just a question of, you know, if, if you were to bring back, let's let's say you had a Roman coin collection. Let's say you were a, a soldier uh, stationed in, in Europe in World War II and you happen to collect ancient coins and you, and you brought them back with you. I totally understand that. I just have trouble believing that when it came time to go to the beach with your wife, you'd say, honey, grab the beach towels and the umbrella and I'll get the cooler and the coin collection and off we go. We'll stop for a six pack mm -hmm. on the way over. Like people just don't bring their coin collections to the beach. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't make sense to me. So, mm -hmm. um, yes, I suppose once or twice that might have happened, but we're talking, you know, 100, 150 examples of Roman coins. Uh, all, always, by the way, always along the coastline. Some, somebody the brought them over here. Somebody brought them over, yep. All right. Um, it wasn't a seagull. It wasn't a seagull. Kentucky Girl says, Elohim is the name in Genesis of the one who created man in their image. What do you make of that? <laughs> well, again, so, you know, if God created, uh, all right, let's get into some religion here, but, um, Elohim is a name used to refer to as God, both in the masculine and feminine. So it's interchangeable. So in my mind, the ancient peoples, because they had always thought of uh, of a multitude of gods. Remember, they were, there was different gods. Think about the the Romans and the Greeks; they had different gods for everything. At some point, Abraham came along and basically tried to whittle this down to become monotheistic, one god. Mm -hmm. But the residual, the echoes of all that multiple god thing, was still in our consciousness and so when we when the ancient peoples when the early biblical peoples at the time of abraham start or just before were thinking of one god it was still a multitude mm -hmm. and so when they when they squished everything down into a single entity yahweh it still had male and female aspects to it and so that's why i think the the words we have the various words we have in the old testament for god reflect and uncertainty as to whether he or she was male, probably not female, but male and and or I'm sorry, male or male female. Mm. Well, I think, I think he whittled it down to one because there is only one God there. All right, let's get to this question here. It says, David, what do you think about? I'm going to do this wrong here. Kalasa, K-A-I-L-A-S-A, -A temple in India. I don't know what that is. I'm sorry. Okay. okay. And here's another one for you from Rose. It says, uh, David, why were the Knights Templar labeled as evil, as an evil group by the Vatican, uh, by the Pope at the time? 
Right. So long story. So quick history of the Templars. This is the early 1100s. Nine French noblemen decide to form an order. They're going to go over to Jerusalem and protect pilgrims, which is a nice idea. The pilgrims are getting robbed by highway bandits on the way to the Holy Land. Mm-hmm. They never did that. They got over there and what they settled in, and they really immediately started excavating under the old Temple of Solomon as if they were looking for something, treasures or religious artifacts. Um, so this was 1118, 1119. Within a decade, uh, whatever they found, they were able to send word back to Europe or bring whatever it was back to Europe, and quickly they became incredibly powerful. They were given autonomy. They were recognized by popes and kings as being um, the army of the church. Uh, and really within a generation, they had become probably the most powerful entity in Christendom. So to me, it all goes back to what did they find under the Temple of Solomon? Did they find the Holy Grail? You know, we talked about that earlier. Did they find the Ark of the Covenant? Did they find, and here's where this gets to the question earlier, did they find secrets of early Christianity which the church didn't want revealed because the church maybe had changed the narrative a little bit to suit their needs. Um, So flash forward 200 years to 1307 and the Crusades have been lost. The, The army of the church, the Templars, really aren't needed as much by the church anymore because that battle's over, that war's over. Uh, meanwhile, the Templars, whatever they learned back then, has, has alienated them to a degree from the church, and in particular, the church teachings. They've made it clear that some of the stuff the church was preaching, they don't agree with. Mm-hmm. Well, the church, in conjunction with the king of France, who, by the way, owed the Templars a ton of money, figure, you know, we got this entity that's here in Europe. It's almost like a ticking time bomb. It'd be nice to get rid of them. And by the way, the king of France says, works for me. The best way to get rid of my debts to kill my bankers. So the pope and the king of France get together and say, okay, let's trump up some charges about, against the Templars, about them being heretics, about them being bad Christians. And, and I think part of that's true. I think, again, the Templars, whatever they learned in the Middle East, had them questioning some of the church teachings. As an example, there's a lot of evidence that the Templars – were secretly worshiping John the Baptist and not Jesus, that they believed John the Baptist was supposed to be the Messiah. He ended up getting killed by King Herod, and Jesus sort of inherited that. But they believed that it really was John the Baptist, not Jesus. Well, obviously, that's not consistent with church teachings. Mm-hmm. But that would explain, by the way, why the Templars worship this head called Baphomet, Remember John the Baptist, mm-hmm. way he was killed, right. he was beheaded, mm-hmm. and no one ever knows what happened to that head. It may be oh. the Templars ended up with it and were worshiping it. Wow. Yeah, well, so well. all that gets back to the answer, which is mm-hmm. um, at some point the church basically decided the Templars were, were more trouble than they were worth and, uh, and outlawed them. That kind of reminds me of uh, uh, the Skull and Bones uh, outfit where they believed they had the skull of Geronimo and they thought they could get power if they drink blood or wine from it. I think they got they got caught with that skull and it has something to do with uh, 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 George Bush and other people had, had were members of the Skull and Bones. In fact, oh, one skull, time skull, the Skull and Crossbones. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I don't, so is, is that it, I was thinking about that and then I also was thinking about uh, Benjamin Franklin when he would he joined the this club in what France. 
uh, w- would, was he trying to be a uh, connect with Knights Templar himself? Uh, ben Franklin? Yeah. Yeah, so I think all I think all the founding fathers, not all, most of the founding fathers, if you look at them closely, had ties to Freemasonry. Hmm. Not surprising. A lot of people did back then did, but the founding fathers seem to have close associations with Freemasonry, and although the Freemasons don't like to admit it, my research indicates pretty strongly that the Freemasons uh, were descended from the outlawed Knights Templar. The Templars basically went underground, mm-hmm. reconstituted themselves, and there's a lot of commonality between the Templars and the Freemasons. So when you're talking about people like Ben Franklin, uh, who was known to be a Freemason, he wrote a whole big treatise about Freemasonry, spent mm-hmm. time in in France, was a member of a Masonic lodge. Um, yeah, I think you have to ask the question: Were they uh, were were they delving into some of the old Templar secrets. One of those secrets, and here's where some we get some fun speculation. Okay. One of those secrets is what happened to the Templar treasure when when right. the when the church and the king of France went in and outlawed the Templars, raided the the Paris commandery. And by the way, this is Friday the 13th of October, 1307, mm-hmm. which is where the Friday the 13th unlucky day comes from. Wow. When they went in and, and raided the commandery. They expected to find all this treasure because the Templars were incredibly wealthy. They found nothing. The Templars mm. had been forewarned about this and had whisked away their treasures a day or two before to a port on the western coast of France called La Rochelle. And from La Rochelle, the treasure disappeared. Some people think it went, think it went to, to Scotland. Mm-hmm. Some people think it came to America. One of the theories is that that treasure, which ended up potentially in North America, and one of the possibilities is Oak Island. If you happen mm-hmm. to watch that History Channel, The right. Curse of Oak Island, the show The Curse of Oak Island, they're mm-hmm. always talking about Digging treasure, of course, mm-hmm. and the Templars as a possibility. Mm-hmm. One of the things that's coming out more and more recently, and I keep hearing researchers talk about it, is that the Freemasons in the 1770s leading up to the Revolutionary War found the Templar treasure, Mm-hmm. and use that to fund the American Revolution. Wow. This goes back to your question about Ben Franklin and the other Freemasons. If they were in Europe and learned about the Templar treasure, the location of it, <clears throat> that's one of the possibilities. I'll give you I'll give you a little tidbit. You you may or may not have heard, of course, this show basically comes from Indianapolis, Indiana. And the word Indianapolis or Indiana, they say there's no record of it. They say it was because there were a large amount of Indian tribes here. Well, there were Indian yeah. tribes all across the country. I don't know how we end up with more than anybody else. But others have said it's a, it's a more occultish thing because right in the center of downtown Indianapolis, there's a statue with the, with the goddess Diana. So you have in Diana Polis, uh-huh. Polis, which means city. So, you know, it seems that the end, I think there's 32 steps going up, which is a definitely a, Masonic yeah. type of situation there. So, hey, how, how you like that? In Diana Polis. That's some evil going on here. By the way, one other factoid about Indianapolis. We have this flag, uh, Indianapolis flag. A lot of cities have their own flags. One day, I was downtown, and I counted no less than nine upside-down Indianapolis flags. Now, either everybody didn't know what they were huh. doing, or it, there's a, some sort of bat signal out in, in the area here. 
for maybe some occultist activity here. All right, let's get some. Uh, let's get, get to another question for you. Uh, what do you know sure. about the Tartarian Empire? Supposedly, America was part of it at one time. I have never heard of that term. Never heard that term before. That's a I'm new sorry. one for me. I, I love this show because I learn all, all sorts of things. Uh, did witches really live with bears in caves during the 1800s? I've never heard that. Um, I, I can't imagine the bears would let that happen. So no, okay. I don't think so. And this is from Bear. Do you think Noah's Ark will ever be found? Talk about an out-of-place object there. No. I, so I, one of the fascinating things about the time we live in is that the technology, you know, the the, the underground, uh, ultra, uh, the uh, um, um, ground-penetrating radar, pardon me, mm-hmm. and other scientific methodologies are just – you know, the technology is growing so fast. So we're able to find things. There's a fascinating um, pyramid hill in Indonesia that mm-hmm. people were, had no idea it was Gunung Padang, by the way, it's called. People had no idea it was it was a pyramid, thought it was just a mountain, but they were able to scientifically sort of x-ray in there and determine it was a series of stones. Anyway, to answer the question, um, it's such a huge artifact that it's hard to believe we would have missed it. On the other hand, the technology is growing so fast and we're able to, to sort of look under the ground so adroitly now that it, it actually is possible. I think my first answer was probably not, but I'm going to change my mind on that and say at some point the technology may get to the point where we can find something like that. See, the, see the problem with that, David Brody, is there are gatekeepers and I hate them. Because you know somebody's going to check. Nothing gets released to the general public without somebody checking with somebody else and whether or not we can handle it or whether or not they want to or whether or not it fits their narrative or their, adds power to, the, to whatever office they're in. But it just seems to me if they did find some, you know, I, I mean, I, I saw there was one under sea. Uh, I think it was by some kind of radar, but it just looked like a UFO had skidded underneath there. But, um, you know, we don't, there may be some huge things out there that they're never going to show us. I hear you. I hear what you're saying on that. Um, related to that, it's not a direct response, but related to that, I saw an interesting interview the other day with a guy who was the, uh, the grand master of the Knights Templar, that the Knights Templar order has been reconstituted. So they're headquartered in France. He happens to be here in Colorado, but he says that it's the time has come for them to reveal a lot of their secrets. And one of those secrets is that he claims that the Ark of the Covenant is here in America and that it's time uh-huh. for them to reveal that. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about gatekeepers, mm-hmm. basically what he was implying is that the time has not been right until now for the, that group to mm-hmm. share the Ark, mm-hmm. but now the time is right. Mm. Well, that would be a fascinating revelation if the got, Ark of the Covenant all of a sudden was on tour. Well, you got that right. That would be the biggest news event of all time. Uh, is sure. there is there any connection between the 12 tribes of Israel and uh, the Knights Templar? Uh, no, not directly. Um, there, There is some evidence that the Templars or many of their leaders uh, descend – from the the through the Davidic line through Jesus, and so that they're all many of them. I won't say all. Many of them are descendants of King David, as Jesus was. So there's evidence of, of sort of that line. But as far as the twelve tribes go, no, nothing in particular. Do you think the uh, Shroud of Turin is authentic? 
eh, I don't feel strongly about that either way. There's some interesting evidence. It was in the possession of the Templars. Um, yeah, I haven't looked at that very carefully. Okay. And uh, here's another one for you. What is the Oath of Nimrod? It's another <laughs> – I've only got 15 novels. There's only going to be so many of these questions they can ask. So the Oath of Nimrod, we've been talking about giants. Mm-hmm. And I want, to, I want to make sure I get this right, so I'm going to pull up on my computer. We've been talking about giants, of course, and the Oath of Nimrod is the um, – when, when, when Freemasons join – I'm not a Freemason myself, but I, I study the, the, the group a lot because I think they're an interesting tie back to the Templars. And that's what my research is. When Freemasons join, they, they, they have an initiation oath, and – Basically, that oath says that if they violate the, the, the secrecy rules, mm-hmm. that they agree to have their throat slashed and be Ooh. tied down and let the, the tide wash over them and, and the seagulls pick at their brains or whatever. Mm. Basically, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a death oath. That used to be called in European lodges, it used to be called the Oath of Nimrod. Mm-hmm. And it was called that because, again, this goes back, and you don't hear that today in Masonic teachings, but if you go back to the 1800s, it was believed that the first Grand Master in Freemasonry was not King Solomon, which is what you're taught today, but rather Nimrod. Mm. Now, Nimrod, if you know your mm. Bible, was he was the one who built the Tower of Babel. Mm. Uh, he was trying to prove to Abraham that his god, Baal, was superior to Abraham's god, mm-hmm. Yahweh, mm-hmm. and Yahweh came and slapped the tower down and said, I win. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, Nimrod. Mm-hmm. So Nimrod is an interesting guy for the Freemasons to name as their founding grandmaster because he's really sort of the bad guy in all this, right? He's mm-hmm. he's on the wrong team. He's not on team Yahweh. He's on team Baal. <laughs> so for them to call the their initiation right, the Oath of Nimrod, mm-hmm. I thought opened up all sorts of um, – you know, all, all sorts of doors to the accusation that we hear a lot from a lot of different people that the Freemasons are secretly anti-religion, anti-Christian. Well, that's a piece of evidence you could use if you're going to make that argument. Mm. Uh, besides what the, I know biblically about Nimrod, there, this is this is this is way off the track here, but I got I I it came to my mind and being a cowboy, it's got to come out. You know, you got to say it no matter what, no matter how risky. <laughs> No matter how risky it is, but back in high school, if you if you hated somebody or you were mad at somebody or you had a, a you know a scuff with somebody, you say, "Hey Nimrod, get out of my yeah. face!" Wait a minute, you know that? You may be the oh first. yeah, it's, it's a that's a derisive term. We we use, use it as for someone who's not who's an idiot. Yeah. Nimrod was somebody who was a a, a fool or, or 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 you know not very smart. And, and Nimrod was somebody who was slow witted. Um, but and David, you're, my, from, you're you're the first person ever to to know that was a ter- that was a term. Really? <laughs> yeah. Wow. I was like, hey, well, Nimrod. I, yeah, I, right, mean, I, used it, I used it as my I used it as my book title, thinking people generally knew what that was. But, wow. Um, All right, people yeah. people watching the program, if you ever heard of if you ever used the, the derogatory term, hey, Nimrod, uh, to somebody. Hey, How's that vote doing? Am I am I catching up on that vote about the Giants? By the way, or well, let's, let, let's see if you move if you move the needle here. All right, uh, looks like Nephilim went down a little bit, uh, but it's like a well, we got gene- genetic aberrations finally hit. Uh, interdimensional being is uh, 
3.39. Nephilim's still, uh, David, at 81.3. Aliens. Yeah, I'm not going to win tonight. Uh, now, which one do you select? I thought, well, it wasn't exactly, but genetic. So not, not yeah. necessarily a mutation, but yeah. genetic. Basically, it's just they're, they're, they're a, a branch of humanity that, yeah. like the like the <clears throat> pygmies, happen to be really yeah. tall. Right. And, 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 uh, I mean, you talk yeah. about little people. I know the Cherokees certainly have legends of little people running around in the forest. And they say that right. if you if you take something from the forest, don't put something back. Those little people will come after you. I don't, <laughs> I don't really believe all that's a hoax or imagination. I think there's some truth to all of that. Um, Brock 455 says, David, can you read Hebrew? I can I can sound it out. You know, it goes right to left, of course. So I know all the letters. I can sound it out, but I can't tell you what it means. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, did the Columbus have ties to the Knights Templar? Yeah, we didn't get to that today, did we? So um, did I forget, did I send you the image of Columbus's ships with the, with the Templar crosses on it? No, man. I wouldn't put that. Oh, I'd love that one. Sorry, man. So if you look, even as a second grader, you saw the Columbus's ships, the Nina, the Pinta, right. the Santa Maria. Mm -hmm. They all got that Templar cross. Mm -hmm. What's interesting about Columbus is he let – me, let me pull this up. He married into – to, he married into into what's called the Perestrella family. He married the daughter of a guy who was the grandmaster of something called the Knights of Christ in Portugal. Mm -hmm. After the Templars were outlawed in Portugal, they're like, you guys can come back and just change your name. So they changed the name to the Knights of Christ, and this one guy, Perestrello, was the grandmaster. Columbus married Perestrello's daughter. And to and they lived together, Columbus and his new wife, and oh, there's a picture. There we go. And um, and her father, Perestrella, they lived together on the island of Madeira, a small little island up in the Azores. Anyway, as part of his dowry, Columbus was given his father-in-law's uh, maps and charts. Again, the Templar maps and charts. Mm -hmm. Secondly, also on the island, also who married into the Perestrella family is Prince Henry Sinclair, remember my guy who came over in 1399, the Scotsman, right. mm -hmm. his grandson, Drummond, also marries into that same family, and they live on that same island again on Madeira. So Columbus, on both sides, he's got his father-in-law and his brother-in-law, or whatever that is, who presumably had the maps and charts from his grandfather. So Columbus has two different sets of documentations, both from Templar families, that I think helped him get across the Atlantic, which is why we see those Templar crosses on his ship, mm. on his sails. Wow. Um, and this question came in. Oh, the, one, one, by the way, one of the possibility I've read is he put those on there because he knew the Templars had come over earlier and made friends mm -hmm. with the natives. And he figures, I put that on there, they're going to welcome me instead of attack me when I land. Mm. Um, this question came in. Who was a thief on the cross? <laughs> so another... another um, title of one of my books so this goes back to somebody's having some earlier. fun out here what was that somebody's having some fun out there i appreciate somebody's that fun, yeah. so so this goes back to um what i mentioned earlier that one of the things that templars may have believed one of their religious beliefs was that john the baptist was supposed to be the messiah and that when he was beheaded jesus took over to get more specific about this there's a Dead Sea Scroll. I think you're familiar with the Dead Sea Scrolls. Mm -hmm. They were found yeah. in, in the desert uh, right around World War II, and they go back to right around the time of Jesus. Scroll number 4Q521. 
I'm not sure I know what that number is. I just do. Talks about how there are going to be two messiahs. One messiah that descends from King David. That's Jesus. The David line, the Davidic line. And another messiah who descends from the priest Aaron, Moses' brother. That's John the Baptist. Together, those two messiahs will rule. We see that often in society, both modern and ancient, a king and a priest, not one or the other. There's both. And it gives us a little balance, right? A little duality. And that's what the prophecy was. When John the Baptist was assassinated, his half of the leadership pair Mm -hmm. basically merged into Jesus. Jesus basically assumed both roles and became king and priest. There are those who are called Johannites, who worship John the Baptist, who believe Jesus basically stole half of the job. And they call him, there's testimony during the Templar trial about how he, Jesus was referred to as the thief on the cross by the Templars. And that may have been, and this is what happened at their trial in 1307, and that may have been obviously one of the reasons why the church put them down. Mm. But that quote comes from one of the testimonies uh, during the trial, 1307 or thereafter. Wow. Wow. Uh, your book speaks about the wrong Abraham, but who is the right Abraham? Jesus, <laughs> now we're getting into a series of books that have nothing. This is a different whole series. <laughs> so before I wrote all these books about the Templars and exploration of America before Columbus, I wrote legal thrillers, okay? Mm-hmm. Three legal thrillers because, I'm again, I'm a lawyer by trade. The Wrong Abraham is a book about um, uh, basically a terrorist attack on Boston. It has nothing to do with anything we're talking about today. Okay. All righty. All right. Listen, we're getting near the end of the broadcast now. We Man, we've been all over the map, so to speak, sure. here. Uh, yeah. You came prepared to, to say anything. Uh, let's uh, let's kind of end that because, with with that. And certainly got, you got plenty of time to do that uh, about any of your books or any messages. I mean, from, from, from your vast book writing experience there, David uh, Brody, what do you expect people to take away? With the, are, are you, are you t- teaching about history? Are you teaching that, or are you showing that uh, things aren't as they appear? What's the general thesis of all of it? Yes to both those uh, possibilities. So for me, I didn't know anything about any of this until my daughter came home one day from school, maybe 15, 16 years ago, and said, Guess what we learned today? She had come home with the story of Prince Henry Sinclair, the legend of Prince Henry Sinclair. I know that that was a really interesting story. Just and I, out of curiosity, I, I went to the library to look around at it. But the deeper I dug into that, the more evidence I found, artifacts, sites, um, compelling evidence that requires an explanation that the current history books don't give. Mm-hmm. So I have one possibility in that particular case that Prince Henry Sinclair, uh, being a uh, descendant from the Knights Templar families, uh, came over here uh, as as part of that. Okay, I might have that wrong. There we, there's our Robin, there's our Western Knight, but someone else needs to come up with a different story. The story can't be it didn't happen. The story can't be Christopher Columbus because there's too many of these sites and artifacts that are before Columbus. And we can't just wipe them all off the table and say that evidence doesn't matter. Um, and so I guess if you to answer your question, what I am saying is that the history books as we have them today are wrong and they're incomplete and that we need to do a better job 
having an open mind to all these other possibilities. Mm -hmm. And that's what my books try to do. So my books are two things. One, they should be roller coaster rides. I mean, people who read my books generally come back to me and say, that was a really fun read. I really was entertained by that. But in addition, boy, did I learn a lot. Boy, did you do a lot of research. Boy, I never knew that before. That is really cool. And again, I put the pictures of the artifacts, just like you showed them tonight, on, on, the, on, on the pages of the book. So to me, I love to read historical fiction. I love to learn while I'm being entertained. And that's what I try to do with these books. But I also try to shine a light into the dusty corners of history, the things that we don't learn about in school, because I think a lot of them are true. And I think mm -hmm. it's stuff that we really should be teaching mm -hmm. and we need to do learn more to learn about. Um, and sometimes, you know, sometimes we get into some uncomfortable things. Some, some mm -hmm. of the stuff I mentioned earlier, one of the questions, the thief on the cross, the Templars might've believed that, you know, yeah, said that, bad that things was pretty about uncomfortable. Jesus. Yeah. Some people say bad things, you know, it's a, it's a historical reality. So we can either hide from it or we can meet it head on, try to understand why they said it. What was the basis for it? What, how can we learn from it? What, you know, we can either put our head in the sand and just say, no, 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 that, that hurts my feelings. Mm -hmm. It triggers me. You know, mm -hmm. we, we all, none of us like that. Or we say, you know what, what's going on there? Why mm -hmm. did they say that? What, what did they believe? And was the church somehow culpable in changing the history a little bit. You know, mm. we just have to ask these questions. To mm. me, no mm -hmm. questions should be off the table. Right. The truth is paramount. Right. I mean, it, it's true that uh, Christopher Columbus, I be believe he was uh, on some islands and he demanded gold. Uh, is, is that yeah. true? And he cut oh, he the was horrible. He, 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 was, he, he, he was a so, son of a bitch. I mean, he was terrible. So th that that he, is he, true. So and I, and I agree to you about your, the religious aspect of what you're saying, t trying to alter history a certain way. But now today, religions don't have that kind of power to do that. But a different organization is doing it even better than the religious ones could, and it's called government. So now history books are being rewritten to reflect today's culture and to booster, uh, to, to, to cause shame to history, to booster today's culture, the direction that it's heading. And they're even worse than the religious people did because they didn't have the computers and the, and, and all, all the infrastructure and Google and all the other things that can tell you what history was. And they all agreed the same way. Uh, you know, if they have a re rewrite of history to create a narrative, they all tell you the same thing, and, and you're, it's going to be almost impossible to do get through there. I'm glad you're doing what you're doing because people need to keep digging before all the evidence is wiped out, and all we're going to get is some some woke looking version of history that is not even remotely close to what it was. Daniel, what you're saying, I think, is everyone's entitled to their own opinions, but they're not entitled to their own facts, right? Right, I agree with that. Right. So, so again, if, if we look at hard evidence, which is what I try to do, then the facts eventually went out and, and you, you know, facts are facts. And so that is the way we prevent either side, either group from skewing things to mm -hmm. their benefit. Mm -hmm. If we, if we have more facts, eventually, hopefully the facts went out. And so mm -hmm. that, you know, that's always been my, my belief in this. I have no horse in this race. I, you know, I'm not a descendant of the Knights Templar. I'm oh. not Scottish. Not like my family came from Prince Henry Sinclair. I'm not a Freemason. None of this stuff. I'm just a guy with a passion to do research, and so I'm just trying to. I'm just trying to get to the truth. 
All right. Well, so am I, and that's why we had you on the program here, uh, David Brody. Excellent. I appreciate Fun you coming. I appreciate you coming on on the show. How do how do you like the, in, this interview type style? Very, very much. I love the free flowing. You know, I said to you, "What are we going to talk about?" And you said, "That you named eight things." I'm like, "How's that going to work?" But that works out really well. Okay. Um, yeah. So I pre- I appreciate uh, appreciate all the good questions. I appreciate the, the lively conversation. Appreciate all your listeners, whoever that one person was who had my list of titles there. I thought that was pretty funny too. So. I know who they oh, are. Oh, good. I will deal oh, with them. Good. I will deal with them after the show. I know exactly who they right. are. And anyway, oh, I, I appreciate you coming on. We got a link to your website in your bio section on the Edge's website, and I'll send you the links after we edit and upload uh, to Rumble, uh, Amazon, everywhere else. Okay. Beautiful. And just quick, I keep the books really, really affordable. They're fifteen bucks if you want the book itself. Less than five bucks for the Kindle version. I want people to read these. I think you know that's the way to that's the way to spread the word on this stuff. So what's the dive best, in. I think what's, the easy, what's the easiest way to get them? Amazon. Amazon. Go to Amazon. Amazon. Yep. Okay. Amazon for everything. Yep. These All right, days. everybody. You heard the man. Go to Amazon.com and check out some David Brody books. David, I appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you very much, Daniel. Much appreciated. You bet.